You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. To God's Word, we're uh, looking at the book of Isaiah and chapter 42. Uh, from We're going to look from verse 10. Uh, up to this point, Isaiah has uh, tried to encourage, God is speaking through Isaiah to encourage Israel who have uh, faced enormous difficulty and trouble. And in chapter 42, there is the promise, the first of the servant songs. And then from verse 10, this is a response to that, uh, a song of praise to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountain tops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. I'll read the second part in a while, but... If, um, kind of giving it away with the title, but some of you, if I, 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 I swayed about actually singing this, but decided not to. Uh, if I said to you, I'd like to, te- I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love, grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to see the world for once all standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. Uh, You know that the seekers, some of you will know. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it in different forms. And it's one of those songs that, um, you know, if you've ever going to stand for Miss World, you've got to stand up and smile and be pretty and then say you want peace in the world. If you're going to be a politician, this is a song for you. I want to build the world a home. I want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. And if you are a human being and realistic, you look at this and you just go, That's, it's not how the world works. But sometimes I think in our Christian praise and our Christian songs, sometimes we give the impression that, that that's what we mean by praise. And uh, I want us to think about why we praise God, because it's not an immediately obvious answer. Most of the songs that we sing in in our society, in our lives, do tend to be about ourselves. So, praising God. Sometimes people will say, well, it's very egotistical, isn't it, for God to ask us to praise him, apart from the fact that he's God. But uh, there is that kind of objection. And I, I think that some of us, and I am guilty of this as much as anybody, in our conversations, it is about us. And our songs are very often about us as well. Now, this chapter, there is an outburst of singing, a call to praise, and that is a feature of these chapters in Isaiah. Why? Why do we sing praise to God? The obvious answer for many people is because that's what you do in church. But we need to think about why do we do it? Why? Because we like the tune, because the words make us feel good. That gets it completely the wrong way around. Here's why we praise God. 
It's because of the glory of the gospel, of the good news. You may be here visiting and you're saying, what's all this about? And you're not too sure what to expect. And I want to say to you that once you grasp what this good news is, then the one response you will want to do is you will want to praise. You, you do kind of say, wow, you are stunned, you are overwhelmed. God's solution to the confusion and the evil in the world around us is to send his son, anointed by his spirit. The passage before, we've just been reading, we'd read about how he's gracious and he's gentle. And this news is incredibly exciting. The gospel is exciting and should stir us up. You know how if if you get excited about something you want to tell, uh, I'll not say who, but there's somebody in my family who, if they get excited about something at work, they talk, you know, and, and talk really fast. And you want to say to them, slow down, slow down, just take your time, take your time. You'll get there anyway, just slow down. But I, in, in a way, I love it. In fact, not in a way, I do love it. I love the fact that there's this enthusiasm and so on. You know, it's a bit like teenage boys, you know what it's like, come home from school. How'd you get on today? Uh was it a good day? Uh. You know, it's, it's that kind of, yeah, fine. You know, and some of that gets translated into adulthood, especially, I think, in Scottish men. How's things? All right. Have a good day? Yeah. You know, you could be in the midst of a revival, and, and, and we'd be kind of a wee bit doer about it at times. Well, that's not what happens here. This is really exciting. And there's so many parallels, for example, in, in all the Psalms, but Psalms 95 to 100 especially. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. We have plenty to sing about. It's all the nations. Now, it's interesting, you'll see... Uh, up on there that he mentions Kedar and uh, Selah. Kedar from Psalm 120 verse 5. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. What he's saying here, both Kedar and Selah, the Edomite Selah, he's saying, our enemies are going to sing praise to God. He's, he's showing the wonderful grace of the gospel that the people who hate you and who probably you hate, that they are also going to be brought in and they will sing praise to God. God turns his enmity into praise and that is a wonderful thing. So some of the basic things I think we get for, prayer is, uh, for praise is we sing in order to praise God and not ourselves. There's a, a wonderful clip on YouTube that I was tempted to show, but thankfully we don't have time and I won't. Um, it's called uh, Me Worship for the Me Church. And it's a caricature of an awful lot of what goes on in church. I, I thought we'd reached depths of depravity in the Christian church, which we wouldn't get any lower until I saw um, Joel Osteen's wife, I think she's called Victoria, standing up and saying, when we praise God, it's not God we're praising, it's ourselves. And you think, how? 
How, how, do you, how do you even claim to be an evangelical Christian and come out with a statement like that? It's all about me, Jesus. But it's not. It's not. It's all about God. And it's all about Christ. And we praise him. We, we sing in order to praise God and not ourselves. And that's important. It's important for the guys who are leading uh, the praise. It's important for us because everyone's got their tastes. I like this kind of song and I like that kind of... We've got to say, how does this praise God? And that's why the words are uh, so important as well. We call also all creation to praise, all peoples, all nations... Look what he does here. The sailors and the desert dwellers, the wilderness and the towns, the suburbs and the schemes, the rich and the poor, black and white, old and young, all are called to praise him. Let the desert and its town raise their voices. And it's a new song. Um, you know what it's like. The, you go to, I, I remember um, in the Free Church, we used to have what was called the tyranny of the six tunes because there were six tunes, Kilmarnock, Dunfermline, I can't remember what they all were, that every congregation knew. But the trouble was, some congregations, that's all they knew. So you've got six tunes and you're singing four singings each service. It gets really repetitive and really dull and really boring. And even your most favorite song, suppose you can get a piece, a, a song that you love. I, mean, I love, for example, I've, I'm, I'm just discovering or rediscovering Bach. But if I listen to a piece of Bach, you know, oh, that's gorgeous. And then I listen to it again, oh, that's gorgeous. Oh, that's gorgeous. But if I listen to it a thousand times, it's going to become quite dull. And I think here the, the idea is that it's a song that's not on repeat, but it's a song that we are continually learning more and more the glory and the grace and the wonder of God. And so our singing is to be uh, afresh, if you like. I love what Calvin, I'm going to quote Calvin a fair bit today because I, I just thought this was fantastic. And it, you know, when you think of Calvin, think Calvinist. When you think Calvinist, you think miserable. Uh, that's, that's true for some Calvinists. And you know who you are. Uh, but it's not true for a Calvin himself. And he says this, by new, he means an excellent, beautiful, and elegant song. Not one that is ordinary or common, but a song which may arouse men to admiration as relating to the extraordinary grace of God of which there has never been so remarkable an example. And he goes on to say something very important. He says, actually, the only people who can sing gospel, if you like, are people who've experienced the gospel. It's why, you know, you get, everyone loves the kind of black gospel choir. But if it's a cultural thing, it's not nearly as good as if it's from the heart. Uh, I loved, there was a choir that came to the Scottish Parliament, and, you know, they're a black gospel choir, so it was very politically correct to have them in, but they were warned before they went in, you can't sing about Jesus. And they said, we haven't got anything else, so they just did. And they were, th their infectious enthusiasm for the gospel, you could see it came from the heart. So it, it's, a, it's a new song. We need the direction and influence of the Spirit, says Calvin, that we may sing these praises in a proper manner. But praise is, awful, is also joyful, loud, and public. Verse 11. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Um, 
Can I move that on? This, a lengthy quote, so I put it up because I just love this. I, I read it several times and thought, well, good for you, Calvin Boy. That's, that's exactly, this is just tremendous. He explains, in commenting on this, Calvin says, he explains what the nature of that shouting will be. That is, to celebrate the praises of God. For his goodness and mercy shall be everywhere seen. And therefore, he enjoins them to celebrate this redemption with a cheerful voice. Because the blessed consequences of it shall be shared by all the nations. I think that that's a fantastic thing, that the gospel is going to be shared in Burundi. It is being shared in Burundi. There are far more Christians in Burundi, percentage-wise, than there are here. It's shared in China. It's shared in France. It's shared here. It's shared everywhere. And that's what he says. The consequences of it should be shared by all the nations. And thus we are reminded to cry aloud in the present day with the greatest earnestness when we proclaim the praises of God that we ourselves may be inflamed and may excite others by our example to act in the same manner. And again, think about that. Does the way that you praise God, does it excite others to behave in the same manner? For to be lukewarm or to mutter or to sing as the saying is to themselves and to the muses is impossible for those who have actually tasted the grace of God. It's impossible to mumble. It's impossible to sing to yourself if you've actually tasted the grace of God. And I think we're far too often concerned about style. Not, Calvin's not saying, and the Bible's not saying, that just shouting is, is, that makes it worthwhile praise just because you shout. People can shout for any reason. But he is saying that if the grace of God has really touched your heart and touched your spirit, then you will respond in a manner which is appropriate for that. So he then goes on, verses 13, the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. With a shout he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Now here's an answer to a very important question. Lord, do you care? Do you care that there are people who are being killed because they worship you? Do you care that the poor are being trampled on? Do you care at all the injustice in the world? And God's answer is yes. Grace doesn't mean that God's mood is softened. What it means is this, that God's silence is broken. Because verse 14 goes on to say, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now... It is terrible when God does not speak, but when he does come, he's coming in in two ways. One is as a warrior. You hid your face, he says. But here's an interesting thing. God's hiding his face or lack of response is not to be interpreted as detachment or powerlessness. He's not like uh, Baal. Remember the, the story with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Uh, Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal because they have to go try and wake their God up and they go around and they dance around their altar and they cut themselves and uh, Elijah in one of my favorite comedic passages in the whole of scriptures just stands there and goes what's wrong where's your God is he asleep maybe you need to shout louder you need to wake him up maybe he's gone to the toilet 
Maybe he's on holiday. Where is he? Well, our God does not slumber nor sleep. He waits until just the right moment. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. God's silence is broken. Now, that's the promise that's being made here. The difficulty that some people have is to say, well, why? Why did God wait so long before he sent Christ? Well, it was at just the right time that Christ was born. There was a long gestation period, if you like. But as Sinclair has constantly reminded us from Genesis 3 onwards, there has always been this promise of the Messiah for people to look forward to a Messiah. And here he comes. And two things are said about him. He's the warrior, the picture of the mighty warrior king coming from heaven. The one who stirs up his zeal, the one who cares, the one who utters his battle cry. Now at last the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. Now the great battle has come. You have longed for it. You have longed for evil to be defeated. You have prayed for evil to be defeated. And the warrior comes. But also in this extraordinary images in verses 14 and 15. Like a woman in childbirth. I cry out. I gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. There's an image of God as a woman giving birth. It's an extraordinary image. An incredibly powerful image. I gasp and pant together. Some new event is about to take place. There's an intensity of emotion. There's an extraordinary amount of pain. We have this view about the gospel sometimes, which I I suspect it's kind of blasé. Well, God's good and God's going to do good and that's the way it is. Do you realize how difficult it is to defeat evil? How difficult it is to save people who are wicked? Luke 12, 49, Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. These two images of the warrior and the mother giving birth teach us that salvation comes at great effort and great cost. To pay our debt, to set this world right, is an enormous cost. And these verses tell us that God was willing to pay that cost. And again, Calvin By this metaphor, he expresses astonishing warmth of love and tenderness of affection. For he compares himself to a mother who singularly loves her child, though she brought him forth with extreme pain. It may be thought that these things are not applicable to God, but in no other way than by such figures of speech can his ardent love towards us be expressed. This is a difficult thing to grasp. You caused your mother a lot of pain. And I don't just think when you were born. To grasp the cost for God of saving people, it's difficult in lots of ways to grasp it. That is what the passage is teaching. We sing because God was willing to pay that. Verse 15 
That is really speaking about a divine judgment. God will just not leave the world to slowly destroy itself. There is a judgment coming, but he will lead his people out. He goes on to say, I can move it forward one, please just in there, because I... I will lead the blind by ways they have not known, along unfamiliar paths. I will guide them. He leads us out by a way we did not know. That's a, a wonderful thing as well, because a lot of us, and, and, and you might be one of these people, what you're doing all the time is you're, just, you're stuck in this hamster wheel that you're, you're trying, you keep trying, you keep trying to be better. You keep trying to have a better life. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't happen. Your marriage is not getting better. Your job is not getting better. You are not getting better. Your religion's not helping. And then along comes Jesus and teaches us a new way. And no matter how blind we are, no matter how rough the way, he leads us. He never leaves us nor forsake us. And I love this image of the blind in this way. Because the blind person, I'm sorry, this is so obvious you think I'm stupid for saying it. The blind person can't see. If the Savior says, follow me, and we can't see him, how can you follow? How does a blind person follow when they can't see? Well, what does he do? You take the blind person by the hand. And this is to me ties in with the gentleness and the graciousness of Jesus Christ. He invites us to follow him. And there's a kind of theology that some Christians have that say, this is how you present the gospel. And you present it, you say to people, they've got to follow Jesus and you keep hassling them until they do. But actually, that's not really all that helpful. What is much more helpful is to say, yes, you are commanded to follow Jesus. Bottom line is you can't, but he's reaching out for you and he's taking your hand and he's leading you and he's guiding you and it's why you're here and it's why you're listening to this and it's why his spirit is at work in you right now. I love that absolute image. I love that I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. I will take their hand. Salvation comes through judgment. It's not for the impenitent. That's why he goes on to say that idolaters will be turned back in utter shame. Who say to their idols, you are our gods. And you know, here's the amazing thing as well. And again, I'm speaking to everybody, but perhaps especially to those who are not yet Christians. Bottom line is, you do have idols. You do have things to which you say you are our gods. Whether it's yourself whether it's your career, whether it's your family, whether it's uh, money, whatever it is, it's whatever replaces God in your heart and in your thoughts. That's idolatry and it leads to utter shame. But those who look to Jesus Christ, their darkness is turned to light and they are never, ever forsaken let me say this as a in conclusion this is why we praise because the gospel itself is so extraordinary it's about the dead being raised it's about those who deserve hell being welcomed into heaven 
It's about those who have committed unforgivable sins being forgiven. It's about hearts being renewed. It's about new life coming. In the whole of this chapter, verse 4, in his law, the islands will put their hope. Verse 10, you islands, sing praise, you islands. It's going to happen. And it is happening all over the world. Or in verse 7, he talks about to open eyes that are blind. And verse 16, he opens the eyes of the blind. Verse 12 even, the devotees of idols of Kidar and Selah, they give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. It anticipates the new song that comes from new things, the new song that's in heaven. I saw a lamb, Revelation 5, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You are not praising God. If as you're praising and singing, all you are thinking about is you and what you are feeling. I'd really like this. I feel this is, you know, you have really entered into praise when you are genuinely able to be so filled with the wonder of Christ that you forget about yourself. You forget about all your problems. I began with a song by the Seekers. I want to finish with a song from Leonard Cohen. And I still don't understand how this man is not converted because he gets so much truth in what he says. In his latest album, he has a song called You've Got Me Singing. And I, I can't un- grasp how he gets this so wonderfully because this is a Christian way of looking at things. you got me singing even though the news is bad. you got me singing the only song I ever had. you got me singing ever since the river died. you got me thinking of the places we could hide. you got me singing even though the world is gone. you got me thinking I'd like to carry on. You got me singing, even though it all looks grim. You got me singing the hallelujah hymn. You got me singing like a prisoner in a jail. You got me singing like my pardons in the mail. I love that for so many reasons. Why do we sing? We sing because we've been forgiven. We sing because we're free. We sing because of who did it and how he did it and how wonderful he is and how beautiful he is. We don't sing to witness. Our singing is the witness. We don't sing to cheer people up. We don't sing to earn religious brownie points. We sing because our hearts are full of thankfulness to the Lord for what he has done. That's why in our service of worship, the prayers of God's people the preaching of God's word, the reading of God's word, and the singing of the word of God is so essential and so important because our praise enters heaven like incense. It is worthy of him because of what 
he has done. We never come to God saying, Lord, I've done pretty well today. I've been a pretty good person and uh, you, you owe me. We come all the time saying, I owe you. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I owe you. Except we come to, not to a, a, a bank manager or a, a pawnbroker standing at the door saying, come on, give me, you owe me. We come to a father who rushes out as in the prodigal son and welcomes us with open arms. And you're thinking, this can't be. You know, I'll be your servant. I'll be your slave. I'm just glad to be in your home. And he's, no, no, no. Bring in. Bring the music. Bring the songs. Bring the fatted calf. Rejoice. Bring the best of the food and the best of the wine. Because my son was dead and now is alive. How do you think that son felt? How do you think he felt about his father? How do you think, what do you think he said? Well, that is the attitude we have. Yes, look, we'll have times when we're discouraged and depressed and we come and we pray and thankfully we've got songs of lament and and so on and our father understands that. But our praise is ultimately because our God is so great. We sing because he's great. We don't make him great because we sing, but we sing because he is great. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we know that so often our praise is a mumble. So often our praise is hypocritical. So often it's done to impress other people. So often it's done out of a sense of duty rather than an affection of heart. Lord, we pray that those who are your people here would see more and more who you are and that we would find ourselves being unable to do anything else except respond in wonder, love, and praise. And I pray for any of us here who don't know you. Lord, put a song into our hearts. Put the song into our lives. And may it be not the temporary songs of this world, but the eternal songs of heaven. For we ask in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing uh, an appropriate song, I think, to finish. Uh, My Jesus, uh, shout to the Lord. Uh, We'll stand and sing this, and then please remain standing uh, for the benediction. And uh, I want to, just before we do that, I want to, uh, I read something from uh, Eric Alexander this morning, and I just wanted to share it with you before we sing this song, uh, in which he says the following... (coughs) Excuse me. <clears throat> beg your pardon, I had it written down here for you so I quote it correctly, not just from memory. <clears throat> he says, it's a sign of great spiritual declension in the church when we come to worship out of a sense of duty rather than out of affection. And I, I think, you know, some of us have to confess that. Duty is good at one level, but I want to be singing God's praise because uh, I recognize who he is and what he's done. Um, It is a mark, I'll I'll read it, sorry, in full, I was paraphrasing. It's a mark of spiritual barrenness in the church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty rather than to satisfy an appetite. May you have 
a hunger, a real, true hunger for God. Uh, Let's stand and sing, shout to the Lord. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.